Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Julie Cullen. I'm the Managing Editor of American Nurse Journal, the official peer-reviewed journal of the American Nurses Association, and I'll be your moderator this evening. For today's webinar, The Great FMP Barrier Takedown, Opening Your Path to an Advanced Nursing Degree, we've convened family nurse practitioner experts who will detail the critical surge in need for FMPs and all of the whys for the existing and projected gaps. They'll explore why FMP is considered the most needed of the advanced nursing degrees. They'll examine what the research shows are the challenges to nurses pursuing these advanced degrees, and they'll also discuss the potential for achieving the degree along with its recognition, remuneration, clinical respect, and opportunities in new practice venues. Before we get started, let's review a few housekeeping items. First, today's webinar will last about 45 minutes, and you can submit your comments and questions to info at myamericannurse.com. Second, a full recording of the webinar will be available within 72 hours, and you'll all have receive a link by email. The replay will be available on demand for a full year, and you'll be able to access it for free as many times as you like. Let's get started by introducing our panelists, Dr. Corbett Brown, Dr. Michael Bumbach, and Dr. Janelle Sokolovich. Before we begin the discussion, I'd like to give you a little background, starting with the Institute of Medicine's 2011 Future of Nursing Report. Three of the four key takeaways from the report are related to nursing education. One, nurses should practice to the full extent of their education and training. Two, nurses should achieve higher levels of education and training through an improved education system that promotes seamless academic progression. And three, nurses should be full partners with physicians and other health professionals in redesigning U.S. healthcare. However, according to Fitzgerald and colleagues, advanced practice nursing continues to contend with an identity crisis in the United States. Much of the population suffers from a knowledge deficit when it comes to the skills and abilities of advanced practice nurses. In addition, many mid-career nurses perceive pursuing an FNP degree to be a daunting task. Practicing nurses may fully understand that an advanced practice degree will help them advance their careers, but they're concerned about balancing their professional and personal obligations, and they may feel isolated in the process. Research by Altman and colleagues suggests that nurses must, must be encouraged to return to school and then assisted when they take that step. So, in keeping with the IOM report's view that lifelong learning is critical to nurses as interprofessional inter practice unfolds in healthcare and as the role of the nurse changes to meet the needs of the nation, let's explore with our panel the needs, opportunities, barriers, and educational advancement strategies that can best serve nurses who want to pursue an advanced practice degree. Let's begin with you, Corbett. As we've mentioned, the report from the IOM, which, by the way, is now called the National Academy of Medicine, discusses the critical role of advanced practice nurses in reimagining and reforming the U.S. healthcare system. The report notes that continuing nursing education is the linchpin to achieving that goal. Um, can you talk about what specific doors are open to mid-career nurses who attain an FNP? How is their practice autonomy, remuneration, and professional re recognition affected? And also, what opportunities can they pursue beyond clinical care settings? Thank you for the question. Uh, with most nurses working in a hospital-based system, uh, taking care of patients that need acute care, they realize that there is a great need for upstream care, for preventing hospitalizations and preventing chronic conditions from getting so severe that it impacts the morbidity and mortality of, of individuals. And so as nurses look around to see where they might uh, have a greater impact on their community and along the way have more satisfaction in their professional development, becoming a family nurse practitioner is a logical choice. By becoming a family nurse practitioner, these nurses are able to gain increased autonomy in decision-making, in delivering care to individuals and to their communities, in preventing uh, disease processes, in promoting health, and in changing the quality of care in their community. Uh, because it's a, a change in, in the type of nursing care they're delivering and, and really the 
the location of care, moving from the hospital to an outpatient location, the nurse who becomes a family nurse practitioner is moving towards uh, direct measurement of the impact of the care that they deliver. And so through that direct measurement, we can look and, and see how nurse practitioners on the individual level are impacting the, the care and the health of individuals in their community. And increasingly, that's tied to remuneration. To, uh, currently, nurse practitioners are making on average $112,000 a year, which is a significant increase from the average of a, an inpatient floor nurse. So there's a, a salary increase, but I think what really drives nurse practitioners or nurses to become nurse practitioners is the ability to drive changes in care. That transition from taking care of individuals that, that could have otherwise been prevented from developing more severe disease and landing in the hospital to you know, moving upstream and you know, changing the trajectory of individuals and, and communities in terms of their health and health outcomes. And along the way, these nurses that become family nurse practitioners um, have lots of doors that are open to them. Um, you know, the three main doors that open are in terms of driving, as I mentioned before, the, the quality of care that's delivered in a clinic. Um, the second door that's opened is in terms of academia, being able to, to train the next generation of nurses and nurse practitioners. And then the third door that's opened is in terms of clinical research, where nurse practitioners can partner with uh, researchers and you know, drive research projects within the clinic that have a direct impact on their patients, but as well as patients generally. Michael or Janelle, do you have anything you'd like to add? I'd be happy to. Um, thank you for having me. This this is a very interesting question, and I, I can really only speak upon you know what I see with our students at the University of Florida, um, what I've experienced with myself. Um, the step to advanced practice to me was the next. It was the next level. I had a, a great career. I was an ER nurse, and I got to a point in my career where I said, I, I need more. So I was at a point where I needed more in, in education. I needed more learning. I needed more um, uh, the next challenge. Advanced practice nursing allows for that challenge. And what's unique is specifically with the Family Nurse Practitioner Program is it opens the doors to a wider array of patient clientele. It could be pediatrics to geriatrics. Here in Florida, we have our fair share of geriatrics, and it opens the door for that continuation of care. And you have enough experience, you have the um, clinical background, you'll have the nursing background, which you'll always carry with you going forward, but it really does allow for that next level, what I, I mentioned earlier, that increased autonomy, the opportunity to um, kind of work out of the hospital. I know for me that was huge. When I was younger, our, we were starting our family and we were looking for opportunities. I was looking for um, better hours. I mean, the hospital is, the tertiary um, hospitals are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, full time. And you're gonna get shifts all through that. When I became a nurse practitioner, I, it was like a breath of fresh air. I became a nurse practitioner and I started the clock at 7.30 and I got off at 3, 3.30, sometimes five o'clock if I had a really busy day. But it allowed for uh, better opportunities for me, for my personal life as well. Um, what we try and tell our students too is to keep your horizons open, right? So the advanced practice is your clinical backgrounds, but um, here at the College of Nursing, what we do is we, we teach all of the other paradigms with it. So we teach our theory, we teach our statistics, we teach our business, our analytics, and that opens the doors to so many different parameters, so many different opportunities. We have nurses that own their own companies. Um, we have nurses that are in partnership with um, uh, other healthcare providers. We have nurses that are entrepreneurs that have come up with applications. We have uh, nurses that go into education, that go into full-time research, and the, the family nurse practitioner track really does open those opportunities for that. 
Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Corbett. Um, Michael, I'm going to throw this next question to you as well. Um, what are some of the factors that are driving the current and projected increase in the need for family nurse practitioners in the United States? There's, there's a very significant factor here in the state of Florida, and it's really no surprise. Studies and trajectories have shown this over the past 15, 20, 25 years. The number of retiring baby boomers coming to the state of Florida has gone up through the roof. I read, I saw a report on the news um, a couple days ago, and it said here in the state of Florida, we're getting something like 10,000 people moving into the state per day. Well, that's obviously going to put uh, some strain on the infrastructure of healthcare, not only healthcare, but everything, um, everything that we do, food, travel, transportation. Um, that number of baby boomers going into retirement has not only been projected, but now we're getting to that level where we're starting to see that into um, our, our healthcare system. So family nurse practitioners, being that they have the opportunity to take care, to, to, to uh, monitor, manage, and to successfully treat um, the increasing population, that allows for a lot of great opportunity for nurse practitioners, for family nurse practitioners throughout. Um, we noticed also back in 2010 with the addition of um, the, the Affordable Care Act that the healthcare um, access to insurances had opened up. And when they had opened up as well, we um, needed more professionals to take care of the folks that were into the healthcare system. So family nurse practitioners are at a um, unique spot where they can jump in and they can go ahead and help out with patient care, jump in throughout um, the, the family, the lifespan, and um, take the well opportunity for that. I'd like to piggyback on that. Um, you know, at WGU, we really focus on the underserved equity and access, and I see the F&P also in the response to rural health. Um, Post-COVID, we can recognize and we have done some research um, as we're thinking through our strategies and post-COVID, the, the number of rural communities who have had hospital closures, who have lost psychiatric and mental health services. And so, you know, the FNP need is dire in the rural areas as there happens to be in, in one of the, in Missouri, there are um, about a quarter of the state where there's not a practicing psychologist or psychiatrist within, you know, 50 to 100 miles. And so the psychiatric FNP is significantly needed throughout the country. And so the, this, this particular need is not just, uh, um, you know, relevant to the age of the practicing nurse, but also um, the post-COVID pandemic need to support rural America um, and to support those areas that now have had closures of hospitals. Uh, it's significant and it's imperative as we think about um, our need and our response in nursing education uh, to fill those gaps. If I could continue with that, that's a very important fact because what we've noticed and um, the, the studies have shown that physicians actually live and practice within seven miles of where they live, but they tend to center in the urban centers. Now, of course, that's a, a large generalization, but there's a significant amount of primary care physicians in the urban centers across the United States. Uh, a couple of years back, we did some research with some GIS mapping and the um, uh, the PI to that uh, research, Dr. Donna Neff, who's now at the University of Central Florida, we looked at the differences from nurse practitioners, specifically family nurse practitioners, to where they were living, which um, also indicates where they practice. And what we found is there was a significant difference for family nurse practitioners and nurse practitioners in general in the rural settings across the United States. So when we educate and we send back the nurse practitioners after they graduate from the, the, the education systems and they're out practicing, they tend to return and practice in the areas where they're from. And that's a significant difference from um, where we see just healthcare, primary care across the United States. And that mapped out um, quite nicely when we looked at the maps of locations of practice and then also the spots where they live. 
Thank you. Um, Janelle, I'm going to throw this question to you. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the knowledge gap in the United States among patients, the general population, and also within the healthcare community itself um, when it comes to the skills, proficiency, and training of advanced practice nurses. Also, I'm wondering what role nursing education programs can play to better educate the public and healthcare professionals, including nurses. So, you know, most nurse practitioners have heard of the seminal work of Brown and Olneski. Uh, they posit they have this uh, entire outline of limbo to legitimacy about novice APRNs. And I have an idea that part of the, you know, being a novice and what they found in their research, their lack of confidence as they begin their practitioner role actually directly impacts their ability to truly exemplify their skill impacting the patient care community, meaning the perception of the community, half of that has to be with how our new APRNs demonstrate confidence in what they do, right? Uh, they, they go from uh, learning that they diagnose to a point and then become an APRN and they're able to diagnose fully. And that, I think, is is part of, of, of the challenge within the community. On the other hand, I will say from a positive perspective, you know, we went from around 90,000 nurse practitioners and um, APRNs in 2010 to over 290,000 now. So, um, and we have close to 70% of nurse practitioners serving as primary care providers now. So I, I think it's changing. I think... It began with a lot of policy and, and um, lack of states to allow practitioners initially to have the extent of prescriptive authority that we have now seen in improving, right? Not perfect, but improving across the nation. Um, but also the confidence level of our advanced practice nurses. And so one of the things we, we really focused on at WGU is making sure they feel confident in their ability and also um, have the support to gain that confidence because we know that's part of the communication to the community at large is their confidence and, and feeling legitimate in their ability to perform as a practitioner. And so, I, I, you know, I think that's part of it. When we talk about messaging um, and, and specifically the mid-career nurse as they think about um, pursuit of an advanced practice degree, I believe our education programs have to do a lot more to ensure the public is aware of the value of the NP. I talked about one of those values, which is beating the need of psychiatric mental health services, um, but overall, uh, rural health in, in overall, right, with 90% of the U.S. being rural and 20% of its population living in rural areas, but we have an entire uh, plethora of critical access hospitals that are closing as well as um, you know, physicians that are moving back to the city. Um, and we need to work as programs, as health professions programs, to connect to the older, over 1,800 rural hospitals, to really work on building these pipelines to developing nurse practitioners where they live. Um, I also think it's important for us to create opportunities and pathways that provide um, some support from organizations, scholarships, tuition reimbursements. Because one of the things you talked about as we began is that oftentimes the mid-career nurse is a little resistant to starting because they have a family or they have a, 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 they're a caregiver. They have a lot of other responsibilities. And then post-COVID, as we know um, specifically for, you know, for uh, women of color, post-COVID and nurses of color, in particular, it was a study just done about nurses of color post-COVID, financially um, were impacted even more. And so they may, in their mind, say, I really want to move forward in my career, but I can't because I am in a new dynamic financially. Now, of course, most things that you get, uh, financial services, are on your previous tax returns, right? But you have a nurse who is... Uh, you know, working and they're doing well uh, on paper, yet their entire life has changed um, because of the pandemic and they're maybe now the primary provider for their family in their same home. 
right? And so in order to promote, to really, uh, first, what's very important to me is growing the diversity within nursing. And part of that is creating opportunity, which I'm, you know, we're calling on higher education to do that, creating scholarships, tuition reimbursement, motivation to give that nurse an opportunity to change their dynamic, to change their flexibility, to change the ability for them to be able to afford, um, you know, to live and, and to develop professionally. But we have to create uh, the opportunities. And, and that's, we really pride ourselves on that at WGU and, and making an affordable opportunity for students to finish their degrees. But, but my challenge, of course, is to all higher education, um, all nursing programs to create opportunities for the mid-career nurse who, you know, may be sending children to college, may be, prov- be a pro- care provider. It's up to us uh, to create pathways for these students to help them um, get the support they need, the financial support they need in collaboration with organizations and businesses and to really, you know, rally, um, you know, for, uh, even with our government to ensure that we are letting, uh, uh, helping these nurses get to that next level in their career, right? We have to create those stepping stones um, to help them make that decision to continue their education to not just for themselves but for our country and to help our entire country meet the demand that we need and have the health services that it so desperately needs, specifically in our underserved um, areas, underrepresented populations, um, and really to uh, to advance diversity in nursing. And all of these things really go together, um, but a lot of it has to do with us creating those pathways and partnerships and creating affordable education opportunities. To piggyback on, on Janelle's statement, I think that there are opportunities for nursing generally and for nurse practitioner programs specifically to strengthen our messaging and our marketing directly to students or prospective students as well as to the community. And um, for example, uh, nursing in general for 19 years straight per Gallup has been ranked as the most trusted profession in the United States trusted in terms of honesty and in terms of ethics. And that's without a national campaign of, you know, where the nurses were the most trusted. It's just through the organic relationships that nurses have with individuals and with families and with communities to where that, that human engagement leads to like a very high level of trust. And so we already have a strong basis to build on trust with knowledge, uh, knowledge of what nurses can do and what nurse practitioners can do in driving change in healthcare. And there are great opportunities, as Janelle mentioned, in terms of of reaching communities that haven't had care, Um, communities in rural areas, communities in urban underserved areas, uh, communities that have had underfunded services for generations. there are great opportunities for us to break down barriers and build lasting partnerships of care. Thank you. Um, I'm curious to know about how um, current online learning environments can help overcome some of the professional and personal obstacles that um, may cause some mid-career nurses to be a little ambivalent or reluctant about pursuing um, advanced degrees such as a FMP. Um, Corbett, could you um, answer that question? Yes, thank you. Uh, So as a preface, it's interesting to me that a lot of the sleep deprivation studies are done on nurses. And these studies are are conducted using nurses because nurses try and do everything. So we work, we play, we have our family time. We don't want anything else to suffer we prioritize everything above our own sleep. And so prospective students, they're already juggling a ton. And so with online education, it allows that student to prioritize what's most important in their life and to be able to fit in the time to study, this time to learn. So WGU, we're known as, our our mascot is the night owl. 
And that's because a lot of our students are juggling quite a bit. So they're juggling their job, they're juggling their family responsibilities, responsibilities in their community, and they're fitting in time to pursue very rigorous competency-based programs and thrive in that environment. And there are a couple of reasons they can thrive. And it's because we, we focus on making sure we meet the student where they are in terms of time and place. So traditionally, uh, education has been structured around time and forcing the student to fit the timeline of a specific program and the place of the program, where online education flips that and says, we're going to be student-centric, and we're going to meet that student where they're at, in their living room, at their kitchen table, early in the morning, during a, a, a break in the middle of the day, or late at night after the kids are put to bed. And we're also going to meet them in terms of cost. We're going to drive down the cost of education so that it's affordable. So the two biggest hurdles that we help students to overcome are those barriers of time and cost. And by doing that, we're, we're able to help a new generation of, of students gain their training in their local community rather than having to train in an urban setting. They can train in that, that rural town and then be prepared to serve the community in that rural town. Um, as an aside, uh, as was mentioned by Michael earlier, that a lot of practicing physicians are, are in urban settings, and, and generally they predominate in uh, more wealthy uh, urban settings. And it, it's related to the training pipeline to where a lot of the, the medical school programs are in urban settings and the residencies are also in those urban settings. And there's quite a bit of research that um, physicians partner with other highly educated individuals. And so even if they do come from a rural or underserved area, it's hard to go back to that rural or underserved area and find two good jobs for two highly trained individuals. Um, and so it becomes a barrier to going back to the community from which they're from to serve, where online education allows our programs to reach out to those communities and train individuals where they're at to where they don't need to leave their community. They can stay embedded in their community and be trained up to be the servant of their community. Thank you, Corbett. Janelle, are there any specific innovative approaches to alternative clinical learning sites and experiences that are having a particularly transformative effect in preparing nurses in advanced practice programs to achieve the National Academy of Medicine's vision of nurses at the heart of helping to revolutionize U.S. healthcare? I think we can say post-pandemic um, created a revolution in and of itself of innovation, right, in technology. And so what we've learned is through the use of virtual simulation, augmented reality, um, and telehealth clinical learning, um, it's been turned on its side. And we've been able to really step out from what, you know, we perceive as the norm and challenge the future. We have created alternative opportunities using, you know, healthcare partners and other uh, partners across the country and using virtual simulation as it's never been used before and telehealth as it's ever been used. Um, you know, I think that we have to continually think of the next innovative method to educate across the nation to really fill this gap um, of FMP and, and other advanced practice nurses. It's imperative. Um, and, and we've done our great work in really trying to leverage telehealth um, using preceptor relationships with oversight and alternative um, preceptor considerations of alternative preceptor uh, processes um, we've really tried to get very innovative and and uh, determine some key alternatives that would allow us to still continue to fill the pipeline. And, and it's been difficult, for sure. Um, and that's where I think it's important that we are talking about this because we need partners, right? We need those tech-edge, you know, innovative partners that have thought through this and maybe haven't walked into the healthcare space to really help propel us forward. 
um, you know, and, and we use so much technology for so many things and, and, you know, we think of it and then we maybe let it drop. And that's where I think it, it's really a call to arms and action for everyone. Um, it's important that we advocate for it because these alternative clinical learning, you know, experiences and solutions have to be managed and they have to be developed quickly. Um, we are doing our best and we are, we are really stepping out of the norm. Um, we have, have definitely revolutionized in the idea of telehealth and virtual simulation and, and augmented reality. And um, we've, we've worked very hard to see exactly where we can, you know, move to the next space and, and what does that look like and, and what are the tools that we need and how can we expand access. But we've also learned that access, the Internet, and technology was a key opportunity for us. And so... I think there's still a lot of work to do, for sure, and I would love to hear more about, um, you know, what our partners in Florida are doing and what other um, healthcare, you know, education providers are doing, um, because I think this is something that we all need to partner in uh, to really build a strategy that is um, sustainable and can be supported um, by both physical campuses and online programs. So I'd like to go around to each of you. Um, I'll start with you, Michael. Is there one key benefit of an advanced nursing degree like an FNP that you think is least known or underappreciated by mid-career nurses? That's a great question. Um, when I talk to my students and when I reflect back on my own personal, my own personal, my work experience, I, I got to tell you that first, Christmas where I was able to be home and I was able to spend time with the family, spend time with um, yeah, the people that I, that I valued. And at the same time, too, I was still on call. So I was still productive. I was still able to work and I was still able to uh, shift my focus out of the hospital. I think a lot of folks um, don't tend to talk about that. You know, we talk about uh, taking our education to the next level um, taking it to the next point where we're able to uh, learn and we're able to continue to grow and we're able to continue to do more complex, um, different patient care. I think that's all important as well. But it's the little things that help out, right? It's the little things that make the family nurse practitioner role um, so attractive. It's the opportunity. It's the ability to to open the doors after graduation. If you want to gain further experience, you have the credentials, you've got the uh, ability to do that. It's taking the education and utilizing it to, to grow professionally. And when I talk to my students, that's, that's their main motivator. That's their main um, piece that brings them back into uh, graduate school. Um, we, we have the Doctorate of Nursing Practice, so the DMP degree opens the doors to so many, so many things. Like, as we talked about earlier, and it was mentioned, research, education, entrepreneurship, and, and so on and so on. It's those, those little things that tend to add up, and I, I, when a nurse uh, goes for their advanced practice uh, clinical degree, that's the, those are the things that keep them in the role. I, I, I don't know many folks that have gone to nursing, to FNP, and then to nursing, right? So they tend to, to stay in that role, especially with increased satisfaction, increased efficacy, increased autonomy, all of the factors that allow the, the, the nurse to, to be happy in their role. I totally agree with, with Michael that there, there are so many social benefits as well as professional benefits of transitioning from um, registered nurse to a family nurse practitioner, and the professional benefits extend um, lifelong to stay on top of medical research and, and literature and so that you're always driving evidence-based care for individuals and families in, in your community. And I totally agree with Michael that it, it opens up the opportunity for the family nurse practitioner to be an innovator and an entrepreneur. So with our programs being so cost-effective and so affordable for students, the, the debt that students carry is, is minuscule and, and at times it can be none because we're, we structure our programs to where students can work through the programs 
they're so affordable. Um, and so that that uh, reduction of of debt load and and um, allowing our students to be to be free of of that financial pressure allows them to seek out practice types that suit their desires, that suit their needs, and to actually drive innovation within a practice and to open up unique types of practices that fit or serve their community in ways that they've never been served before. So to me, I think the entrepreneur is really what I think many times a nurse doesn't think about. Um, you know, years in the hospital, we would have nurses selling different items as well as working and doing anything to make a little bit of extra income. And I think if they understood that this decision to um, become an advanced practice nurse um, allows you to become a business owner, right? Um, in many states, you can own your own practice and um, work um, with some autonomy and ability to have your schedule and your life and your, your family and really truly make an impact on healthcare and the quality of healthcare that's provided um, to really change the trajectory of some of your patients that you've cared for and you've seen in that in just a simple follow-up um, to provide that level of care that we pride ourselves on within our profession and to be able to change families, to support whole families, um, and do that through your own business. So I think, I think we think about the care aspect. I think we think about it being seen professionally, but think about being your own boss, you know, and and really allowing yourself um, to push yourself beyond those those different bounds that we you've created in your mind. Um, there's just a great opportunity, and it's really the doors open. Uh, we, you know, it's there. Uh, you got to step through it, and and really take that next step forward. Um, in considering where you want to be five years from now and how we can get you there. Um, it's up to us in higher education to provide that education, and it's up to the nurses to make that decision. Those are those are all fantastic points, and I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I would I, I tell my students a lot of times as well, you know, I got excited. I, I got really excited going to graduate school. Because as a nurse, you work and you follow your orders and you take care of your patients and you have your patient care and you do everything to the protocols. And as we talked about, you know, you're on hospital schedules, you're on uh, maybe you're you're in a, working as a nurse in an outpatient center somewhere. So this, the timing is definitely a benefit as well. But what I got most excited about is when I went to graduate school to become a family nurse practitioner, all of the things I started to piece together in my head working in the hospital, working with admin, working with budgets, working with uh, clinical factors, working with um, evidence-based practices, all of that started to really take shape. So I, I remember sitting in class, and I was in a research methods class, and I thought to myself, holy cow, this is, this is what I knew was there, but I just didn't know how to piece it together. So I didn't know how to do the research, or I didn't know how to do the QI or the QA um, uh, protocols or the QI um, quality assurance um, measures to be able to test out something that I see is a, it's an absolute problem. Or I sat in a health policy course and we talked about laws and litigation and the things that are important to the lawyers that are kind of always overarching us. Or I sat in a health economics course and we had to construct budgets for floors or construct budgets for a simple clinic. Or I took a business class and we did uh, a business plan. I mean, those are the things that I started to put together and then I moved forward in my FMP career and then that became so useful because like I believe Janelle mentioned, we are so focused on the clinical side of things and evidence-based practices, but you'll tend to find out medicine doesn't really change rapidly. It, it tends to be things tend to move um, like a barge, like over time. And yes, guidelines change, and you absolutely need to be up to date on guidelines, and they may change depending on what you do, you know, every couple months or every couple years or, uh, you know, maybe even longer. But there's other things that we can be focused on as well. I, I don't know too many people that get happy with a budget unless you're making money, and that's all important as well. Or a business plan. When you put together your first business plan and you're able to 
um, put together a product or an idea or an application that you are in clinic and you've just experienced an issue or a problem or you've seen a real need for, that's when this advanced practice degree education and experience really starts to take shape and to take form. And that's where we become change agents in the community. The, the family nurse practitioner is in that position for that. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with any of the tracks of advanced practice. I, I, we fully support each other, and we should act as a team, and we should come to the table together as a healthcare community. But the FMP, because we're so diverse and you're, you're, you have the education and the experience to be able to be in so many different markets with so many different patients, with so many different environments, it really opens the doors to, you know, the world's your oyster. You, you can come up with whatever you can come up with and that's the beauty of it. I have, I've seen students and it's a fantastic, I love it when the students come to the table and they're doing their DMP projects. And at the College of Nursing, we have one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, mentorship with the graduate nursing students with the DMP projects. And I love when they come to the table and they said, I get it. They, Dr. Boombach, I get it. Like, this is what I need to do. This is where I need to change. This is where I need to go forward with. And that excitement um, I love to see that in, in the graduate program. And I think all of us have experienced in some way, otherwise we wouldn't be in our careers as, as we are at. I completely agree with Michael there that um, the family nurse practitioner has such a broad educational background and foundation for delivering care to individuals throughout the lifespan. And so it creates this foundation upon which we can build so as we look to the future, uh, so the National Academy of Medicine is going to release the next report this upcoming May. And while I don't know what's in the report, um, my hope is that it suggests building blocks uh, upon the FNP and other nurse practitioner degrees uh, for future practice. And what informs that thinking for me is the work of the late Clayton Christensen and disruptive innovation. And disruptive innovation is where um, a, a part of the market segment is currently underserved by the incumbents, and a new competitor comes in and starts serving that, that portion of the market that's, that's kind of overlooked or, and undervalued and starts to move upstream. So one of the best examples of this is in the steel mill business, that the traditional steel mills were focused on you know, big I-beams and, and large uh, steel components that were high value and high margin and overlooked things like rebar that they viewed as low margin and, and really not worth their time. And so many mills came in to the marketplace and started making rebar. And the incumbent steel mills weren't threatened by that that com competition because in their view they weren't competing on the big margin ticket items like the the i-beams um, but over time those mini mills were able to build competencies to where they moved upstream and eventually were able to to make the same i-beams the same steel components that the big steel mills were making and and disrupted them through that innovation that disruptive innovation and so I view nurse practitioners as being the same. So traditional uh, medicine has, you know, built uh, the, the clinic systems in areas that are more affluent, and the rural areas and underserved areas are the ones that suffer. Unfortunately, they are the communities that are treated like rebar that are overlooked. And so as an example, you'll have two zip codes, one right next to the other, where one is more affluent and has uh, greater access to health care, and the life expectancy in that area compared to the neighboring zip code that has less access to health care and less affluent can be 10 to 20 years in terms of life expectancy. And so uh, my hope is that as we've taken a, a foothold in terms of primary care, and especially in delivering primary care to rural and underserved communities, that we can start moving upstream, that we can uh, 
build upon this this really solid foundation that is a family nurse practitioner graduate and a family nurse practitioner degree to building on uh, fellowships that that will help train that nurse practitioner to then move into a specialty focus to serve that underserved community because we need primary care family nurse practitioners that can, as Michael said, work in pediatrics, women's health, full family care, internal medicine. They can work in any of the primary care clinics. Um, and as we add that specialty training, we can empower them to, to move in their professional career even further to then deliver endocrinology, orthopedics, cardiology, pulmonology, other services that are in equal need in the community, and we can do it at a lower cost. And so there's a great opportunity for us to, to follow um, Clay Christensen's model of disruptive innovation and move upstream and deliver the services that, that Americans need. As Janelle said, there's, there's been a shakeup with the pandemic and things that the traditionalists said that could never be done are being done. Um, regulations that were, we were told could never be loosened are now loosened, allowing nurse practitioners to practice to the full extent of their training and education. And so as we are able to deliver additional training and education, we will uh, make an even larger impact on the communities. Thank you, Corbett, and thank you, Janelle and Michael. Okay, audience. We're ready to start answering your questions. We'll try to get through as many as possible in the time we have left. Okay, so let's start with our first question. I'm going to throw this one to you, Mike. Here it is. Is there potential at the FMP level to leverage bedside care to the wider community at large? For example, providing disease prevention and health promotion and bringing improved patient outcomes to diverse and often under, un, underserved populations. Absolutely. First and foremost, thank you for having us. Um, what an interesting topic and um, a lot of need, a lot of need across the United States. I know um, if any family nurse practitioners are interested or any potential FMPs are interested in Florida, there's a huge need. but. There is a huge, huge experience that nurses carry inside the hospitals. They are, uh, they run the show, right? So a hospital is not a hospital without a nurse. So that bedside experience, that technological experience, the um, experience of patient education, of being there with the patient, that experience is, that, that's a, a rich wealth of experience that you can take into the FNP world. Healthcare, uh, shall I say, even like a specific disease, like liver failure. Liver failure is liver failure, right? It, it's bad in the hospital, but it needs to be managed in the outpatient. So that experience of the inpatient going then to the outpatient or to a primary care setting or to a family care setting, that's all a very um, strong uh, wealth of information that you take with you. And if there's any kind of wavering of confidence of uh, somebody that's thinking about an F&P program or thinking about taking that next step. Don't ever, ever underestimate your experience that you have in the hospital with patients, with the healthcare team, with other nurses. And that experience absolutely translates over into the graduate world as well and is extremely needed. Because imagine knowing that bridge, knowing that link between the tertiary to the outpatients, to family practice, to primary care, to urgent care settings, or whatever it is. So that that leverage, I would say, um, use it and uh, take it to the next step, take it to the next level, and uh, see what you can do with it. Thank you. So I'll take the next question. Um, Corbett, I'm going to throw this one to you. Um, and Mike and Janelle, feel free to jump in, too, to answer this if you'd like. Are there specific approaches with alternative clinical learning sites and experiences that are having an effect in preparing nurses in advanced practice programs to achieve the IOM's vision of them at the heart of helping to revolutionize U.S. healthcare? Great. Thank you so much for the question. And um, really, we're at the, uh, the frontier of, of using alternative 
clinical education models. Um, up until present, the main measure of students' competency is the clinical hour. And there are really kind of two areas in, in life that we measure change by hours, and that's in education and in incarceration. And in both, it's actually not a, it's a very surrogate measure and a poor measure of, of either competency or change. Um, and in fact, uh, recently there's a, a push for all programs to measure competency based on competency and not on hours. And so that's going to open up uh, a wide avenue for alternative clinical learning experiences, whether that's through telehealth, um, augmented reality or virtual reality, and, and other technologies that are, are yet to be conceived to allow students to build competencies and then also to test those competencies. So we'll move away from uh, the clinical hour as being uh, the, the best measure or we should say the, the, the only measure of students' competency and um, towards actual direct measures of competency using technology. Um, as an aside, with COVID-19 and the pandemic affecting so many aspects of our lives, we've seen how regulations have been loosened, and we talked about that in the webinar. Um, and the regulations were loosened because the way that things were done before um, had to change. And we saw in so many aspects of our lives where um, previously individuals or, or groups would say, no, we can't change the way things are, have been done. We can't do it differently. Overnight and literally over um, you know, weeks and sometimes days, systems had to change the way they they performed the way they, they educated students, the way that they reached individuals and patients. For instance, with telehealth, uh, there were systems that, that couldn't function uh, because face-to-face -face clinic visits were prohibited. And so um, in some of these systems, they had previously stated that, no, they couldn't use telehealth. And literally overnight and literally over the course of a three-day weekend, they were able to set up telehealth services. And we, we've seen the same thing across uh, the nation in terms of education that in programs that said, no, we, you know, we really can't teach these didactic courses using online model. Um, you know, some of those programs were forced into online education. And the benefit with WGU is that's, that's our bread and butter. That's we are set up to, to reach students where they're at in time and place through online education that measures their learning and their competency directly. And so it's not tied to the hours, it's tied to competencies. And, and we are uh, prepared to leverage all of the new technologies to, to meet our students' needs and to meet the needs of, of FNP students to prepare them to, to work with their community. This is Mike. I, I just wanted to make a comment. I think that's fantastic. And I, I think if anybody's looking for a program for graduate school for an FMP or you know, any kind of advanced practice nursing, consider not only the technologies, but what technologies are we willing to try? So, I mean, there's some technologies that are out there that are absolutely fantastic and we can all, you know, lean on them and we they help build competencies and they help build simulations and so on and so forth. But there's some other technologies that may not get us to where we need to be. So what's nice about us is I think nurses are very much in this in this ballpark altogether. We're willing to try it. But if it doesn't work, then we're going to look to something else. But in the meantime, then, that evidence-based, that, that research-based uh, practices are, are so important. Um, it, it, I know at the University of Florida, so what we do is we push as much research and evidence to support whatever we do because that's, of course, important. But then, as Corbett said, COVID kind of backed us up into a corner. So we were kind of forced to say, what else is there? What else can we do? Let's look at some alternatives. Let's see what else is out there. So, you know, for folks coming into a graduate program or even for folks looking for faculty positions, the opportunities of advancing or moving into these technological frontiers are are absolutely there and they're here and, and they're not going anywhere. As we know from nurses in the hospital, 
with electronic medical records. I mean, 30 years ago, that didn't exist. In the outpatient world, I distinctly remember moving to electronic medical records and just bemoaning the fact, but also recognizing that it's not going anywhere. So there's a lot of approaches that we can jump into, we can try, we can leverage, we can uh, tweak as needed. And nurses are very much in that um, kind of front line to be able to to, to make it work or to say, hey, we need to reconsider this or reconfigure this. Um, I would say as a faculty member in a graduate program, that's one of the main things I enjoy is, is trying to figure it out, making it work, what's the research, what's the evidence behind it, making it move forward. Okay, it looks like we have time for one more question. Janelle, I'm gonna throw this one to you. Um, what are some of the key and proven strategies to engage and encourage mid-career RNs and their professional career aspirations? Yeah, it's funny. Um, actually, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation did a fantastic study on those barriers and motivators. And so there's some really great evidence. You know, one of the big motivators they found uh, through that study is that improving social welfare, that was huge for the nurse, being a positive role model for their children. That was another motivation. Um, and then wanting to accomplish those personal and job satisfaction and professional achievements. Um, and they actually found that, that nurses with graduate-level degrees were more likely um, to state that they were extremely satisfied with their job and to stay at their job. And so those are some of what they found as the motivators. Um, but one of the barriers that uh, we found um, that I think is important for us in higher education to truly understand was, you know, were costs and family and children. So, you know, as care providers, they did not want to put their children aside to be able to complete their education. And then their second most prevalent response was cost. Um, and lack of time actually came in last. So as much as many times in higher education, we think it's because the, the student may not have the time. From this research study, which was a good um, a validated study, it found that really cost was almost number one, family was second, and time was third. So I think when we think about what we're going to do to really motivate that mid-career nurse, it's to um, ensure that the cost of education is um, either supported through scholarship, tuition, grant, um, or that we ensure that higher education understands this and creates costs that um, they can afford, right? works with partners and hospital systems to build collaborative relationships um, to make sure that those nurses are able to go back to school and not, um, you know, add any more debt on because many nurses in, you know, in their undergraduate in some uh, using some type of financial aid and so they don't want to add on to that. And so as in that we know cost of education is a major barrier, we need to really work at using developing those incentives for scholarship and financial incentives. Um, and then when we talk about the family, it's really how do we create an opportunity for a person to complete their degree program, um, ensuring that they have childcare or support for their children while they're doing it. You know, online education has allowed us to have the opportunity to go to school 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and to be able to have the flexibility to be able to support our family. You know, when I was still teaching in the classroom, I, I would always say, I want you to do a real-time calendar, a real-time. So if you, you know, go to church on Sunday, if you, um, you know, go to bath on Saturday night, whatever it may be, put that on your calendar and set your family time because they're not going away. But we, and, and then still understand exactly how much time you have to study, but that takes time, right? And so we really need, um, you know, education facilities that really understand the life balance um, and have dedicated structures for helping students manage that life balance. Um, and then that can also help with the time barrier, right? So those are real things. And then also considering the impact of the social determinants things that nurses of color and nurses from underserved populations may have uh, different things on their plate, right? And so um, part of the study, they also looked at nurses in rural settings who were having more than one job, right? And so, yes, the motivation was to get them to go back to school, but they're in a setting in which they, because of where they are financially, they maybe need to work more than one job. They have more than one nursing job. And so that's important, right? 
um, you know, working day shift, working night shift, voluntary overtime, uh, involuntary overtime. So there are just some circumstances that we have to be aware of, um, and I think those are things that we in higher education can mitigate um, as we focus on nursing education, as we focus on making nursing education more um, diverse and uh, increasing that workforce diversity. These are things that we have to consider and we have to understand to really help support that mid-career nurse in transitioning. Um, thank you so much for this time today and for being able to engage with you all. This has been a phenomenal webinar and just a great opportunity for us here at WGU to be able to engage with the ANA and all of nursing. Thank you, Janelle. Thank you so much. And thank you, Mike, and thank you, Corbett, and thank you, audience, for joining us today. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day.